Welcome to the PA Books podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. While the focus is always on Pennsylvania, topics like the Revolutionary War, the Battle of Gettysburg, the Industrial Revolution, the coal and steel industries, and authors like John Updike, David McCullough, and John Grogan have a universal appeal. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This week on PA Books, the author of Making Good Neighbors, Abigail Perkis. Abigail Perkis, author of Making Good Neighbors. What's so special about West Mount Area? Do you want to write a book about it? Uh, West Mount Area is one of the first and arguably most successfully racially integrated neighborhoods in the country. Um, at a time in U.S. history when neighborhoods were rapidly transitioning from all white to all black or some, some mix of that, uh, Mount Airy residents sort of decided to try to protect the viability of the community by not giving in to the notion of fight or flight and instead welcoming in African-American homebuyers who were seeking to gain entry. When did this take place? Um, integration in Mount Airy started in sort of 1953-54 is when the concerted effort began. Post-World War II is when across the country we see this sort of contest over residential space beginning to emerge. Well, for people who don't know, where is Mount Airy? Sure, Mount Airy is in northwest Philadelphia. It's kind of nestled between Chestnut Hill and Germantown, um, and it's part of the historic, historical larger German township. How far is it from Center City? Um, it's roughly 10 miles from City Hall, 8 to 10 miles, um, just up uh, Kelly Drive or the expressway, and then take Lincoln Drive out to it. If you go there now and walk around, what do you see? You know, it's a really diverse place, um, sort of geographically. You have the Wissahickon Park, part of Fairmount Park, abutting the, the uh, western side of the neighborhood. And so there's a lot of green space. There's a lot of trees, both residentially where the houses are, but also there's this vast network of trails, you know, right in the neighborhood. Um, you have the Wissahickon Creek running through the park, and so that's really a pillar of the community. Um, the housing stock is really, really diverse in Mount Airy. You have everything from, you know, colonial and revolutionary era farmhouses to some post-World War II, you know, modern, modern construction. And that's actually one of the reasons that the neighborhood um, was so, that, that so many people wanted to stay there in the 50s, that you couldn't just sort of pick up the neighborhood and move it to the northeast or move it to the suburbs because it was such a, a diverse place visually. Um, there's sidewalks on all the streets. There's little hubs of, of commercial space. So the, the corner of Carpenter Lane and Green Street, um, people call it the Mount Airy Village. And there's a, a great little coffee shop. And there's the Weaver's Way Co-op. And there's a dry cleaners. And there's a, um, a space that changes quite a bit, but it's sort of a community space. Um, you go up to Germantown Avenue, and you have um, restaurants. And uh, there's a theater. Um, there's you know, a Wawa, you sort of have everything that you could want commercially there. What was it like in the 50s before immigration, st uh, integration started? 
1951, um, outside of the sort of southeastern pocket of the community, the Sharp Neck section, which was um, traditionally a space for domestic workers, it was actually 98.6% white. Um, pretty solidly middle and upper middle class. Um, it was a neighborhood where people had investments outside of their property values. So they could afford to be a little bit more, um, I don't want to use the word cavalier, but they could afford to take a, take a chance on property values dipping a little bit without their entire worth plummeting. So they were affluent? Um, it was a relatively affluent neighborhood, um, certainly of a professional class, and the African Americans seeking to move in very much were demographically um, you know, wealthy. You refer to it at one point they had a reputation as a PhD ghetto. That's actually more now um, than, you know, that wasn't, that wasn't mm. talked about in the 1950s, but people talk about it now as a PhD ghetto. Um, the pers I don't know the numbers offhand, but the percentage of people in Mount Airy who have graduate degrees is um, disproportionately higher than the rest of the city and the rest of the country. Now, uh, going back to the post-World War II era when integration started and the Great Migration, how did it all unfold and how was Mount Airy different than other neighborhoods? Sure. So we see these sort of two things colliding in the years following World War II nationally um, that, that create the space for residential neighborhoods to become one of the battlegrounds of civil rights progress. Um, first you have World War II, which not only creates for the first time in the United States a, a critical mass of a black middle class um, because of professional opportunities that the war brought, but you also see a, a sort of turn in the national ideology about race um, that's partly ideological um, because people coming back from the war, you know, there was this sense that you can't fight fascism abroad without contending with the issue of racism at home. So in 1942, we get the, um, the proclamation for a double V victory, victory against fascism abroad and racism at home. So you see this new consciousness emerging among both African Americans and whites that we need to rethink race relations in the United States. At the same time, sort of strategically and diplomatically, we have the emergence of the Cold War. And with the Cold War, suddenly the U.S. is um, their claim uh, to democracy is challenged by the Soviet Union, who, which, you know, this, this contest between the two of them, it, within this contest, the U.S. Has to, has to prove itself. They have to say, you know, we, we practice what we preach. We, our Constitution promotes democracy, and we as a nation promote democracy and all of that, what that means, and racial progress is part of that. So especially for, you know, the, the non-allied nations in, in Africa, in Southeast Asia, in Latin America, that haven't yet sort of picked sides, haven't been wooed, um, the U.S. really needs to say to them, like, look, we support racial, racial progress. So the, the federal government takes a different approach toward, toward race relations. And this, these two things come together to open up spaces in the United States that hadn't been, hadn't been open to African Americans in the past. So in the South, I'm sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. Um, in the South, we see sort of the beginning of the dismantling of Jim Crow. Um, and in the North, we see the beginning of um, restrictive covenants and, and sort of the, um, the property laws shifting, specifically with the U.S. Supreme Court case Shelley v. Kramer, um, which says that you can no longer put restrictive covenants, racially restrictive covenants, in deeds for houses, um, which had previously um, prohibited 
the sale um, or acquisition of houses to people of non-white races. Well, what, what caused the great migration of African Americans from the South to the North in the first place? You know, a lot of it, there's sort of two moments of great migration in the United States, and both of them, I think, it could be argued are caused by, by, by national um, movements, either toward war or, in some cases, the Great Depression. Um, but they were African Americans seeing opportunities in industrial cities, um, seeing opportunities in urban spaces, um, and taking advantage of those opportunities. So moving from Southern agrarian communities up to you know Chicago and Detroit and Philadelphia and, and New York and Boston, um, seeking those, those new economic opportunities. Well, when that happened and you had an influx of African Americans to, to a city, was, was there federal policy or city policy or zoning that kind of informally said, well, African Americans will live in this part, not this part? Yeah, I mean, in Philadelphia, African Americans were really um, channeled to sort of southwest Philadelphia and areas along the river. Um, and that didn't start to change really until after World War II. So you see critical masses of African Americans in North Philadelphia and southwest Philadelphia um, and parts of West Philadelphia. And, and those areas become ghettoized spaces. You know, they, they, they're created as, or they're not created, but they become circumscribed within those communities um, until policy and practice change. Who channeled them into those neighborhoods? Uh, a lot of that came from real estate um, development and um, um, insurance insurance companies that are that are giving housing insurance and mortgage companies that are giving loans. You know the um, practices of redlining that that start during the Great Depression with the Federal Housing Administration, but um, become a way of sort of um, directing. Um, residential patterns along racial lines um, have really profound effects in Philadelphia and create a deeply segregated city. C can you explain the concept of redlining? Sure. So redlining comes out of the Great Depression. It comes out of the Federal Housing Administration and an effort by the federal government to um, sort of manage how mortgages get allocated. And they try, you know, this is a time when there's very little safety net in the United States. And so the federal government is trying to create new policies and practices to, um, to create a, a federal cushion. So um, they set basically standards um, for city blocks. And those city blocks are rated um, A through D. And they're rated for a number of factors, but one of the factors um, becomes race. So an all-white block, uh, all-white Protestant block could be rated A and an all-African-American block could be rated D. And uh, mortgage companies and insurance companies go in and they literally, like you look at the maps and there are red lines drawn through the neighborhoods, through the blocks where, um, where they, won't, they won't give mortgages. And so these, these neighborhoods become drawn along racial lines. So uh, when integration started, uh, how did Mount Airy react and why was it different than other neighborhoods? Integration in Mount Airy worked for, integration in Mount Airy was possible for a number of reasons. Integration in Mount Airy was possible because of the housing stock that I talked about earlier, because it's such a diverse space um, geographically and visually that people really wanted to stay there. Um, it's, it worked, or it had the possibility of working because the whites that were living there were often people that you know, 
were relatively liberal, liberal politically um, were also relatively well off, as I said. So not all of their capital was in um, was in their is in their property. Um, but they also had relationships in their professional spheres, in their in their public lives, that um, created the possibility of interracial interaction. So you had people working for the orchestra. You had um, the head of the the human relations committee in the city. Um, you had people that were used to working with diverse groups of people, and so it they were sort of maybe more um, open to the possibility of that in in their residential space as well. Um, you had good schools, you had sort of reliable municipal services, you had all of the things that people wanted in their community. And so they didn't want to leave. So they, they said, they looked around and they said, okay, so in, you know, in Germantown we're seeing the beginning of white flight. In other parts of the city we're, see the beginning, we're seeing the beginning of white flight. In the Northeast we're seeing perhaps not white flight um, at that point, but um, antagonism building as African Americans are trying to move in. So, and that, that devalued parts of the city. So, so what can we do? What strategy can we adopt to maintain the cultural and economic viability of our community? And they, in 1953, a group of residents and community leaders got together. Many of them were religious leaders um, and really relied on their um, acclaim and their, um, their uh, religious communities for support. And they said, what can we learn about race relations? And they poured over documents. You know, they, these, are, these are academics. These are people that are really interested in sort of grappling with texts. And they looked at constitutions, and they looked at human relations literature, and they looked at um, housing policies. And they looked at this on a local level, a state level, a national level, and an international level. And they came away, you know, a few months later, they came away with the idea that not only was integration possible, um, but maybe they could even craft a model that, that was desirable. So they could kind of protect the viability of the community and gain some cultural cachet in the process. Were there some people in the neighborhood who wanted to resist integration? It's an interesting question as a historian um, because the documents that are available are largely from the organizations that sprung out of these efforts to integrate. So yes, I mean, there were. We, we've, we have evidence of that in the Enquirer, uh, or I'm sorry, in the, um, the Philadelphia Bulletin. Uh, we have evidence of that in some in the Tribune. There, there's pockets of meeting minutes that say, you know, there was this clash here, or this, this person was mad that, um, you know, there, there's, a, there's stories of uh, an African-American person moving next door to somebody, and that person sort of shoots a hose, the, the white neighbor shoots their hose at the person's windows. You know, like little stories here and there. But for the most part, the story that the archives tell is, is not one of resistance. It's one of acceptance, and it's one of, of building collaboration. Um, you don't have the stories of the people that left. And it's really hard to track those down. Um, so we can see larger macro change within the community. We can see what parts of the neighborhood, um, where more houses went up for sale, who was buying those houses. But it's really hard to get the individual stories of the people that left. You say in here, uh, for, for many of Mount Airy's white residents living in an integrated community served to legitimate, legitimate their identities as liberal urban Americans. Was some of it sort of showing off, look at how liberal I am? That's the argument that I'm making, yeah, that integration meant very different things for whites in the community than for blacks in the community. Um, for whites, it was a strategy, as I said. Um, 
but it was also a way for them to sort of profess their liberalness. It was, it was a marketing technique. It was a way for them to be sort of these um, liberal cosmopolitan Philadelphians while still, you know, maintaining what they wanted their neighborhood to look like. So they were really, they were not willing to budge, especially in the 1950s, on the economic nature of the community. This was going to be a, an exclusive community by class. But they were able to do that in such a way that, that, as I said, sort of built up their cachet. Were houses in Mount Airy more expensive than houses in other neighborhoods, which might have excluded some house buyers? Um, houses were definitely more expensive in parts of Mount Airy, though perhaps less expensive than in some of the suburbs, um, though people were incentivized to move out to the suburbs because of tax breaks and, and those sorts of things. So African Americans could move into Mount Airy um, because there was housing stock that was available because people had left or because, you know, because of everyday turnover. Um, but it was certainly a more expensive part of the city than other parts of the city, yes. And were there sections of Mount Airy that African Americans moved to and other sections that stayed white? So Northwest Mount Airy, um, let, me, let me give you the geographic boundaries of Mount Airy. I don't have a map in front of me, but um, so as I said, Wissahickon, the park is the western boundary, and Germantown Avenue is the eastern boundary. And then to the north, Cresham, Cresham Valley Road is the, the northern boundary, and Johnson Street is the south. And the areas closer to Cresham um, and closer to the park definitely stayed white and, can, and continue to be much more white than other parts of the neighborhood. Um, the Pelham part of the neighborhood, which is sort of south and east, was the first area to integrate and was you know, even in Mount Airy, we had blockbusting and we had um, realtor steering, and African Americans tended to be steered toward the Pelham section of the neighborhood first. But, but that also continued through the through the 1960s and 70s, and so in fact that created more um, disruption, more more panic, and and that that's a that word might be a little bit hyperbolic um, because I think panic. The, the relative panic in Mount Airy was less than in other parts of the city because of these concerted efforts, but there was certainly anxiety, specifically in the Pelham section, because African Americans were being funneled there. Well, what was going on in the immediate adjacent neighborhoods? Anything similar? It's an interesting question. Um, at the time, the whole of northwestern Philadelphia, or Germantown and Mount Airy, sort of experienced similar flight. Chestnut Hill, which was which was further out and, and, and more economically um, and, and more wealthy experienced it less. Um, but once Mount Airy started organizing, it exacerbated the rates of change in other parts of the community. So by 1959, we get the creation of West Mount Airy Neighbors, which is the community organization of record there and continues to be today. Um, and West Mount Airy Neighbors sort of staked its claim. The boundaries that I just gave you, those were codified by West Mount Airy Neighbors. And they said, great, we have this pocket, this is our community, this is what West Mount Airy is, and we're going to protect it. But we're not necessarily going to think about what's on the other side of Germantown, and we're not necessarily going to think about what's on the other side of Johnson. And if we have realtors in our boundaries that are being unscrupulous, then we're going to push them out, but they might move to East Mount Airy, or they might move to West Oak Lane, or they might move to Germantown. And so it, in fact, perpetuated and sped up the rate of transition in those other communities. So you, you mentioned the West Mount Airy neighbors is having an integration agenda. Mm -hmm. uh, how did they how did they do that? 
And once you decide you have one, what do you do with it? So West Mount Area Neighbors was formed in 1959. Up until 1959, um, there were other organizing groups in the community, the Church Community Relations Council. Um, in fact, a group called the West Mount Area Neighbors Association, which becomes this larger organization, and other small local groups. And they all really pursued an agenda of individual persuasion. So they would go to door to door, and they would say, you know, come to a come to a tea party and meet your your new neighbors, or we really love it here, don't you love it here, let's figure out a way to stay. Um, so it was very much a, a integration by choice, integration by imploring people that this was the reason to stay and that they should make that choice. In 1959, we see a real shift in the strategy. And George Shermer, who is the head of the Philadelphia Re um, Human Relations Commission, becomes the founder, co-founder of West Mountain Area Neighbors. He really says, let's create an infrastructure here. We need that... Um, we need that individual suasion. We need that block by block, knocking on doors, coming and having square dances and parties and all of those things. Um, but we also need structure that links us to city agencies. We need a way to make this sustainable beyond these localized sort of ad hoc organizing efforts. And he creates a system um, of what I call in the book grassroots moral liber liberalism, which really um, takes the um, spirit of the door-to-door -door organizing, but builds an infrastructure for it and cr connects it to the Human Relations Commission and connect connects it to the mayor's office and connects it to the school board and connects it to, you know, realtor associations and builds a sustainable structure that lasts through, certainly through the, the mid-1970s and it starts to shift then, but the organization lasts, I mean, it still exists today. Was the city government helpful in this process or? It depends on what period you're talking about. Um, the uh, Clark administration, what he cl um, Clark hired Shermer. He brought him from Detroit, and he was a more reformist mayor in the city. And he um, really saw race relations as part of his agenda in the city. And so he um, certainly didn't stand in the way of what was happening in Mount Airy and, and um, supported Shermer. So sort of by extension supported the efforts going on there. Um, mayor Tate, who comes in, you know, I think two mayors later, um, is, is far less supportive of what's happening in Mount Airy. And he and Shermer really do battle over um, the Human Relations Commission, but also sort of the state of race relations in the city. And Shermer ends up resigning from the Human Relations Commission under Tate, um, which has profound effects on Mount Airy because Shermer then takes off and heads to D.C. Oh, he left. Um, oh. He ultimately leaves, yeah. So city government, you know, up and down. School board, in some ways more importantly, um, has an up and down relationship with what's happening in Mount Airy, but West Mount Airy Neighbors has a very firm um, hand in, in talking to the school board. Um, they make sure that they have a strong uh, ongoing relationship with them and that they are able to make their voices heard. Did the new uh, African-American residents of West Mount Airy get involved with the West Mount Airy neighbors? I mean, were they active in it? So that goes back to my earlier point that whites and blacks in the community really thought about integration differently. Um, for the African-Americans moving into the community, certainly there was this notion of racial justice. Um, certainly there was an idea that living in an integrated space um, furthered the progress of race relations in the United States. Um, 
but it was also a way to gain more reliable housing stock and safer streets and better schools and more uh, reliable municipal services. So the material advantages that came with integrated living for African Americans was equally if not more important than this, this abstract sense of racial justice. And that really influenced their role in the community. Um, so, and, and I'm painting broad strokes here, um, but the archival research and, and the oral histories that I've done sort of, they fit that model, um, obviously with, with outliers. Um, so did African Americans participate in Westmount area neighbors? Yeah. Um, by the early 60s, Westmount area is, I believe it's 15% African American, the neighborhood. And the membership of Westmount area neighbors is relatively similar to that. By the early 60s, I believe, maybe a little bit later, we have the first black president of Westmount area neighbors. So there are African Americans getting involved, um, but it remains a largely white organization and the um, organizing efforts in the community, certainly for, for social integration, remain largely white. Um, African Americans, you, you, you know, you see um, articles that talk about how African Americans don't really frequent the restaurants on Germantown Avenue because now they have these beautiful big kitchens and their beautiful big houses and so they want to have friends over. Um, they don't see the need to, to socially, to socialize with the white residents of the neighborhood. They tend to maintain church connections to their churches in North and West Philadelphia. Um, so their social spaces don't necessarily change in the same way that their residential spaces change and I think that reverberates outward into the community in terms of organizing. Well, this may be beyond the scope of your book, but uh, the, uh, Philadelphia had an African-American population going back to the 1600s. Was, was there any uh, problem with the mingling of the new migrants from the South, African-Americans coming newly to Philadelphia versus the ones whose families had been here for hundreds of years? I can't speak to that sort of going back prior to the the 1930s or so. Um, once we see a larger influx of African Americans to Philadelphia, we do see more stratification among African Americans in the city. So, you know, people talk about this notion of a black community, and that is really disproven in Philadelphia and, and disproven around the country. I'm, you know, I don't want to. There is no such thing as the white community or the African American community, but in Philadelphia, we see pretty striking conversations taking place, pretty striking tensions that emerge between the African-Americans in West Mount Airy, um, sort of those with, it, with an integrationist perspective, and um, the black leadership of the NAACP, for instance, and the, what he sees as his, what Cecil B. Moore, who was um, elected NAACP president in Philadelphia in 63, what he sees as his constituents, the sort of African-Americans of North and West Philadelphia. Can, can you talk about him a little bit? Because you write about him. Sure. He's a character in your book. Sure. Cecil Moore. Um, Cecil Moore was, um, again, he was uh, elected to, the, to lead the Philadelphia NAACP in 1963. He was a lawyer. He got his law degree at Temple. Uh, he's a World War II vet, and during World War II, he moved from North Carolina to Philadelphia. Um, he, he fought overseas and then becomes uh, stationed at, at a base up here briefly um, after the war. And he's really struck by the level of entrenched racism in Philadelphia. He came from the Jim Crow South, and he knew de, de, de jure um, segregation. He knew de jure discrimination, and he thought that the North was better. 
and he got up here and he see, sees this very de facto, very entrenched institutionalized racism, and he's really caught off guard. And so he sort of makes it his mission to speak for, speak to and for the, those African Americans in Philadelphia whose voices tend to be marginalized. And in the early 1960s, um, the blacks living in North Philadelphia are, you know, they live in the poorest housing conditions. They have the worst educational levels. Um, economically, they're sort of the lowest, the lowest strata. So he uses his um, position in the NAACP to create a space for the black masses of North Philadelphia, as, as he sort of refers to them, to have a voice in the city. And he sees the integrationist ideology and the integrationist strategy of West Mount Airy as, as sort of threatening to the, um, the larger, I don't want to say black community, but. Well, I want to read a quote that you have. You, you say, uh, Moore said in reference to Mount Airy's black professionals, quote, I run a grassroots group, not a cocktail party, tea sipping, fashion show attending group of exhibitionists. And you quote him as saying, I want a one-class Negro community. Your so-called middle-class Negro is a professional Negro who doesn't come in contact with the masses. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so Moore is really, he sees um, class as a dividing line among African Americans. And he really condemns African Americans in Mount Airy um, and, and in other power structures within the city. But he really targets Mount Airy in his rhetoric as abandoning um, the black masses, as sort of giving up their claims to blackness by not advocating for the black poor in the city. And he calls them out on it in really colorful language, um, really, really amazing quotes. And, and he forces them to respond. So he says, he calls them Uncle Toms, he calls them race traitors. Um, and he says this isn't just about how we affect change. This isn't just about civil rights. This isn't just about racial justice. This is about you, sorry. <laughs> this is about you as an African-American. This is about your identity. And you can no longer claim blackness if you give up your house here and move to, move to Northwest Philadelphia. Um, and there's something really powerful in that. And, uh, and I see what he's doing. I mean, he is advocating for, um, sort of intra-racial pride. He is advocating for self-help within the black community. He, more is complicated because he also works with the city power structure and he's also actually sort of behind the scenes really connected to many of the African Americans in Philadelphia. He buys his house in North Philly from Judge uh, Raymond Alexander and his wife Sadie Alexander. Judge Alexander is, um, and, and, and so Sadie Alexander was on the Human Relations Commission and Judge Alexander is sort of one of the the most prominent black judges in Philadelphia, and, and he's friends with them, but he also really condemns them for not looking out for um, the larger black population in the city. Did the Alexanders live in West Mount Airy? They did. Yeah, they moved. They, they moved from North Philadelphia after they sold more his house to, to West Mount Airy and became very active in West Mount Airy neighbors. Well, uh, how did the African-American community in Mount Airy respond, and, and did they have a forum for responding? So a lot of them took the approach of not responding, of just saying, we're living our lives. We are um, affecting change in ways we want to affect change. We, you know, we, don't have to, we don't have to give him the time of day. Um, 
Sadie Alexander, in fact, gets on the radio. She gets on WDAS and says to Moore, like, my, I go back to slaves. Like, I, I am black. I claim my blackness. I claim the, the civil rights activism that my husband and I are doing. You know, they were instrumental in integrating a number of the city's um, educational and political institutions in the 19, you know, sort of 30s through 60s. Um, she says, I am just as black as you are. Um, but she does it because she's pushed into it. So I don't, I mean, I think that the real sort of, um, the practice uh, among African Americans in Philadelphia was not to respond to more unless called out. Um, so you see hints of a response in the Philadelphia Tribune, the, the city's black paper. You see some letters to the editor sort of calling more out. Um, but for the most part, it's much more of a policy of, of silence than of response. Was, was this a, a planned integration going on in Mount Airy, something that the, everybody in the city knew about? I mean, did reporters write on it, or was it sort of under the radar? That's a good question. I don't know, among other residents of the city, how, how well known it was. But people were writing about it. Um, they're writing about it in the Philadelphia Bulletin. They're writing about it in the Philadelphia P Tribune. So African Americans are reading about it. Whites are reading about it. Um, and West Mount Airy Neighbors really goes on this campaign to market integration. So the Christians, they, they, they send out press releases to the Christian Science Monitor, to the New York Times, to McCall's, to a number of really, really renowned national publications who write big spreads on, on what's happening in Mount Airy. Um, you mentioned a, a brochure that the West Mount Airy neighborhoods, neighbors came up with. What, what was in the brochure and what was the point of it? The brochure... The one you're referring to, I think, was the 1962 brochure that sort of circulated around the city. And it, it's interesting. It talks about Mount Airy as sort of um, this urban cosmopolitan place. It has all the cultural benefits of being in the city, but it also has this bucolic ideal. It has this green space. It has everything you might want by moving to the suburbs. Right, I think they use the term right here in the city. And, and, so, and, and they don't talk about race. They don't talk about race in, in most of their promotional material. They talk about mutual benefit for everybody. They talk about all of the sort of um, cultural benefits of living in Mount Airy, all of the material benefits of living in Mount Airy, all that you can gain from it really without mentioning race or racial integration. Um, but that brochure is, is really interesting in particular because it sort of straddles that line of bucolic ideal and urban cosmopolitanness. Where'd you find the brochure? Where'd you come across it? Mm. It was in um, the West Monterey Neighbors papers at the, the, it was the Philadelphia Urban Archives, I think it's the, the Special Collections Resource Center now. It's at Temple. They have um, tens and tens of feet of archived material from West Monterey Neighbors. It's a very rich, a, a very rich archive. Oh, you refer also to the West Monterey Times Express mm -hmm. newspaper. What, what was that? What's it like reading it? It's a newspaper that, um, it, it ends up being a joint enterprise between West Mount Area Neighbors and East Mount Area Neighbors, which um, forms in 1965, I believe. And it's a, it's a local newspaper that is distributed throughout the two neighborhoods. And it is, um, it's, less of a, it's less of that marketing campaign because they're, they're preaching to the choir. They're talking to locals. And it, it starts quite a bit later. It starts in the, um, I believe, mid to late 70s. I don't remember the exact date. Um, but it, it's just a, it's a community paper. Does it have substance in it, or is it mostly kind of fluff and? Uh, More fluff than 
more fluff than substance, yeah. Did you interview many people for this, many people who lived through it? I did. I conducted roughly 40 to 50 interviews myself, and then there was also actually this really wonderful oral history collection that um, sprung from a project in 1992-1993 in where West Mount Airy Neighbors, um, a, a committee on West Mount Airy Neighbors interviewed a number of people from the 1950s integration project. So I had that whole um, you know, selection of interviews available to me. Some of them have been transcribed and they're at the Germantown Historical Society and some of them are still on tape, um, but they're also at the Germantown Historical Society. Can I ask you a little bit about yourself? Sure. You're a teacher? I'm a, yeah, I'm a history professor. Where? At Kane University up in Union, New Jersey. What kind of school is that? It's a state school, a New Jersey state school, um, similar to a, a Westchester or a Kutztown in, in, in Pennsylvania. Um, it's um, majority first-generation college students. It's, I'm not sure if it's majority minority, but it's a very high percentage of non-white students. Um, students with very different levels of college preparedness, um, a number of commuter students. It, it's a really interesting, diverse community. What courses do you teach? Um, I teach African-American history and legal history and uh, a lot of public history classes. So I teach our oral history. I teach courses on historical memory. What's the interest in African-American history for you? That's an interesting question. I went to graduate school. I, I have a joint uh, law degree and a PhD in history. And I went in knowing that I wanted to study social movements and wanted to study sort of the intersection between storytelling and social change. And I, I had no idea what that would look like. Um, and I actually went to graduate school thinking I would come out uh, a documentary filmmaker. Um, so probably the most overeducated documentary filmmaker in America, but a documentary filmmaker nonetheless. Um, and realized when I was there that I really loved to teach. And, and teaching was a way, te being a professor was a way both to be in the classroom and also be able to tell stories. Um, so I didn't go in with any content specific goals in mind. But while I was in graduate school, I started taking classes in property law and constitutional law on the legal side, and then classes in you know, 20th century urban culture, um, modern social movements on the history side. And I just, I realized that a lot of my interests started coalescing around sort of post-war War II urban spaces in the United States, which necessarily implicate issues of racial justice um, and sort of race relations. So, my larger interests are social movement history, identity politics, um, how communities construct themselves. But in the United States, so much of that um, has consequences for race relations. Is this your first book? It is. Is it part of a graduate thesis? Yeah, this started as my dissertation at Temple. And uh, once I finished, I turned it into a book with Cornell. How much different is the book, book from your um, there's a new chapter, the, the final chapter I wrote after I finished the dissertation, um, and certainly the analysis is more honed and the writing is more polished and um, the reader reviews and, and my editor at Cornell were, were remarkable. Um, my dissertation advisor, David Farber, and the rest of my committee, they really um, encouraged me to write the dissertation as a book rather than as a thesis. Um, so, which, which worked really well for me because I really like to tell stories. Um, so in terms of um, structure, it's not dramatically different, but in terms of content, there's definitely some additions. 
And in your spare time, you do endurance racing? I do. Can you explain what that is? Sure. Um, I am a competitive uh, adventure racer, which is a sport. It's a team sport, an athlon-style sport. So it combines um, trail running or trekking, mountain biking, and paddling of some form. It could be kayaking. It could be canoeing. And it's all done with map and compass navigation. Um, so our races range from six hours, uh, anywhere up to 10 days. The longest race that I've done is five days. And it's all done, the entire race is done as a team. Um, so I race, we have, there's about 10 people on the team that I race out of Philadelphia, but in any given race, there's three or four of us competing. What's a five day race like? How much time do you have? <laughs> um, it's an amazing, intense, um, very intimate, very challenging, um, sort of spectacular wilderness experience. We did a five-day race in Scotland uh, three years ago, two years ago, and over the course of the race, we slept for six hours. Um, total? Total. Uh, I think we had two, like, two-hour blocks in the middle, and then the last night before we finished, we slept for an additional two hours. Um, and the really amazing thing is the connection with your teammates. So, you know, you, there's somebody on the team who navigates, so he, he or she does the maps and compass, and there's somebody on the team who may be in charge of, of logistics and sort of managing everybody, and there's another person on the team who, who makes sure that, you know, is carrying all the heavy gear. And, um, but you really, you're only as good as your team dynamics. You're only as good as the weakest person on the team at any given moment. Um, the really exceptional thing about adventure racing is at the premier level, all teams are co-ed. Um, so there is a woman on all of the, all of the sort of top teams. So uh, what do you do? I mean, when they bang the gun and say, okay, go, where, how do you proceed? It depends on the race. Um, usually what will happen is the race will be broken down into sections. So there may be a, a trekking section to start, and you'll get a map. And on that map, there will be a series of checkpoints. Um, you know, marked by circles, and those circles correspond in the woods to uh, orienteering flags, which are sort of white and orange box flags. And your job is to go find them and then end up at another point where you might pick up your bikes or you might get on the water and, you know, paddle for 20 miles and then you transition to bike. But the whole thing is a point to point navigation uh, challenge. What do you eat? Um, a lot of really bad for you foods that, you know, you can never make up the, you can never eat as much as you're burning. Um, so the goal is really to eat high calorie, um, high carb, high protein, high fat foods that, so will, so like that will keep you going. Candy bars and energy bars that you carry yeah, with you? Yeah, we eat energy bars. We eat, you know, um, I like peanut butter sandwiches on the race course, um, chips, candy, you know, really anything that Yum. tastes good. Um, which which changes dramatically over the course of the race. You, you find that inevitably everything you have does not sound appealing 18 hours into a race. How often do you do this? Uh, it has changed a little bit. Uh, my husband and I race on a team together, so which is... Can that be awkward? Yes. Um, we actually, the first year and a half we raced together, um, we kind of called it marital counseling. We had to figure out how to work together on the race course in the same way we had figured out how to work together off the race course. Um, once we got it down, it, it, it's really wonderful. Uh, it's an amazing thing to be able to share with each other. That intimacy of the team experience is compounded when your partner's on the team. 
um, and you really you know each other so well that you know when the other person is struggling or you know when they need a boost and, and you can help each other out that way. Do you train for it or you just have to stay in shape all the time? A combination of the two. Uh, we train, we, we both train quite a bit individually. Uh, we have a 10-month-old daughter now so that has changed a little bit our dynamics with racing. We do far less training together than we have in the past and we're, and we're racing less. Um, but my family lives right near us. Um, so my parents are around the corner, my sister's a few blocks away, and they have been amazingly supportive in um, helping us with Zoe and allowing us to continue to race. So this summer we're actually doing a seven-day race in Alaska together, and my folks and sister are flying out with our daughter for the finish, and then we're all going to travel in Alaska together. Well, good um, luck. Thank you. <laughs> um, getting back to your book, as you looked at West Mount Airy as integrating a certain way, did you see other areas that were kind of the polar opposites that were doing it exactly wrong? What do you mean by exactly wrong? So it was disruptive as opposed to the way Mount Airy was trying to. I think for make most it work. neighborhoods, this was a reactive process. Um, we had people moving into a community. We had realtors capitalizing on that through blockbusting practices and sort of trying to speed up the pace of change. And we had current residents reacting to that. So parts of the city transitioned from pretty much all white to all black in a matter of three years. Um, but that wasn't just the residents on the ground. That was also sort of the policies and practices that were in place that incentivized move to the suburbs, moves to the suburbs, that incentivized selling your house to a realtor who would then go turn around and sell it to somebody else. Um, so there were economic and legal and, and social practices in place that sort of set up this, this resegregation. Well, while this integration was going on in West Mount Airy, what was going on in the schools? Um, the schools in West Mount Airy are a really interesting case. We see Henry School, which is at the middle of the, the integrated core in West Mount Airy, changing at a much more rapid pace than the neighborhood itself. And that's happening in part because of who's moving in. You get families with a number of young children moving in. But it's also happening because school district lines are being redrawn and catchment zones are being reconfigured. And you see an influx of students from um, largely Germantown coming into West Mount Airy schools. And, um, as West, Mount Airy, as West Mount Airy neighbors sees it, really compromising the integrity of the schools and, and compromising the possibility of the integration project. So um, they do a number of things. Partly they go door to door and knock and tell people to send their kids to the schools. You have the principal. Um, there's a new principal, actually, that West Mount Airy neighbors sort of gets put into place um, through um, relationships with the school board. And she starts calling white families in the neighborhood and saying, hey, come on over, I'll give you a tour. We can talk about what it might look like to have you send your kids here. Um, West Mount Airy is also unique in that there are a wide range of private and parochial school options very, very close by. So you see a real uptick in parents sending their kids to Germantown Friends School and Chestnut Hill Academy and Springside and um, Norwood Academy, a Catholic school. The, the increase of 19119 zip codes on their rosters from the mid-50s to the mid-70s is, is, is very, very striking. So were the liberal parents of Mount Airy taking their kids out of the public schools? Yeah, so in a lot of ways, residential integration Mount Airy worked because parents were able to withdraw from the, the question of schools. Um, if they didn't have to focus on Henry School, if they could send their kids to GFS, if they could send their kids to 
Chestnut Hill, then, then residential integration could be preserved. Wasn't that kind of counter what, to what they were trying to do in the neighborhood? A lot of people argued that it was. Um, other people made the statement that, you know, I don't want to turn my kid into a social experiment. Um, I feel comfortable when I can control what's happening. And, and, and residentially, in some ways, they did have control. You know, the city, um, they made change, you know, tax policies and that kind of stuff. But, um, but they had a pretty, West Monterey neighbors had a pretty good hold on what was happening residentially in, in the community. They had very little control, relatively speaking, on the schools. And so parents, it was a disconnect. There's no question. And it was a disconnect because of issues of race and sort of othering. And it was a disconnect because, um, and, it, and it was a question because the schools were becoming overcrowded and there were fewer resources being put in. So there was these racial questions, but then there was also this question of resources. And parents responded to it by saying, I'm out. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put my resources and my energy somewhere else. Um, so yes, it, it was a contradiction. And it was one that a lot of people in Mount Airy were willing to live with. Was it also different when the kids went from the uh, elementary school to the junior high or the high school that they were going to school with kids from other neighborhoods? Yeah, um, you see certainly an increase in middle school and high school attendance at the, at the private schools in the neighborhood. Um, the reality is the issue of control didn't change a whole lot. The school board was still, um, was still guiding the practices and policies um, at the elementary school level and the middle school level and the, and the high school level. But there were more collisions of, um, there were more collisions of race, there were more collisions of class, there were more collisions of different ideologies once they became regional schools rather than than neighborhood schools. Um, so you get into the late 60s, early 70s, and some of these neighborhoods that had seen very swift turnover from white to black, the kids from West Mount Airy are going to school with kids from those neighborhoods, and parents get nervous, and parents decide to withdraw at that point. This is also a time in Philadelphia when you're seeing um, an increase in gang activity um, and, and um, drug violence and, and, and other sort of urban problems in the city. Um, so, you know, in, 1970, in, the, in the early 1970s, you have um, a, a teacher, he's the first teacher in the history of Philadelphia to be shot and killed at a school by a student, and it's at Leeds, Leeds Middle School, which is in Northwest Philadelphia, which is the middle school where kids from West Mount Airy would go if they were going to public school, and that just sends sort of sparks throughout the entirety of West Mount Airy, uh, or uh, of West, uh, Northwest Philadelphia, but certainly West Mount Airy. Um, so once you, once you get into the regional schools, um, it gets even murkier. Oh, and you, uh, you mentioned the, the drugs and gangs problems that started emerging. Did that seep into West Mount Airy? It did. Um, these were national issues with deindustrialization and changing federal resources. Um, these were state issues, these were citywide issues, and, and they did have, have impacts on West Mount Area. You see um, pretty significant percentage-wise increase, very significant percentage-wise increases um, in crime in the city in the uh, early to mid-70s. You see more housing turnover starting. You also see more conflicts among residents over how to respond to that, um, because when things are good, it's relatively easy to remain calm, um, but when there's things to respond to, um, people have different, ha have different ways of reacting. 
did you start getting the impression that people thought, well, this didn't work? You know, we tried to integrate this way and didn't work. That's an, hmm. um, I think that people started to see the limits of integration, especially in the early 70s. Um, and they started to see the hierarchy of leadership that still existed in the community and the hierarchy of representation. And there were African Americans who lived in the southeastern corner of the of the neighborhood who really said, you know, West Mount area neighbors should just say that they just focus on the area west of Lincoln Drive because they don't care about us, and we feel really marginalized, and we don't feel like we have a voice in the community. Um, That's areas within West Mount area. Within West Mount area, um, you see. Um, the response from West Mountain area neighbors to some of these issues of crimes of, of crime is to really condemn Frank Rizzo and the um, police force and sort of the, the police brutality that's taking place in the city without getting at the underlying issues of crime. And so you see other residents in the community come, come in and say, okay, those are problems and we need to deal with them, but in order for our, our streets to remain safe, we need to do something about that here, and, and maybe we even need to work with the police force a little bit. So you start to see real clashes within the community over, over how to deal with the issues of crime. Yeah, we didn't mention Frank Rizzo, who's a, a character in your book. Yeah. Was, did, did he have any influence? Or was he a force in, in this one way or the other? I mean, he's certainly a force in Philadelphia, and he, and he becomes a force nationally in the issues of sort of law and order policing. His relationship with West Mount Airy tends to be... Um, relatively confrontational in that residents of West Mount or West Mount area neighbors um, condemns him, censures him for his for his policies. He actually lives in North or lived in northwest Philadelphia um, in in West Oak Lane during this time. So so there's some interesting sort of residential versus professional issues um, that emerge. But he really is is villainized by West Mount area neighbors. Um, but I don't see much of his response back. You also say at some point uh, there's a, a, an increase in gay population in mm -hmm. West Mount area. When did that start, and when did it start becoming acceptable? Well, we see a, a, a gay population in, in West Mount area. I mean, there's, um, there's oral histories and there's, there's archival evidence of, of a, a sort of critical mass gay population in West Mount area from the early 1950s, I believe, and, and, it, may, and it may have been back even further, um, but the, the research I had started in the 50s and 60s. In the mid-70s, we see a real shift in the, um, the strategy that West Mount Airy Neighbors deploys in sort of creating community cohesion. And so they start to shift, and this, this actually comes in part out of the, the tensions over Rizzo and, and crime in the neighborhood. Um, so you start to see a real shift away from discussions of integration and, and toward the notion that people in Mount Airy live differently, um, that it's a place of tolerance, it's a place of open-mindedness, it's a place for alternative lifestyles. And I think that the movement of gay and lesbian families to West Mount Airy in part um, is fostered by that and in part coincides with that. You had um, Palton Village and Germantown and parts, other parts of West Philly that had been real hotbeds of activism um, in general in the 60s and 70s and um, had had large gay populations. And a lot of those, the people that lived there are sort of growing up and wanting um, a little bit more stability, a little bit more space, a little bit more privacy. And they see West Mount Airy, at, they see the legacy of integration in Mount Airy as a promising place in terms of finding 
um, an open-minded community, a community of tolerance. So, so it coincides with a migration from sort of activist hotbeds in the city. Well, you're right toward the end of your book. In the last 20 years, the overall population of West Mount Area has decreased from 17,000 in 1990 to about 10,000 in 2010, with black residents accounting for 70% of that loss. So why is that? And is Mount Airy still thought of as, does it still have the same type of personality that it had? To answer your second question first, yes, Mount Airy still has a reputation for, um, well, it, I mean, it's still very much celebrated as a historically integrated space. It still has a reputation for tolerance, for diversity, for open-mindedness, um, for liberal politics. I don't study contemporary West Monterey, so other people could probably answer that question with more rigorous research. Anecdotally, I've, you know, what I've heard is that housing prices have gone up and they're pricing out, um, they're pricing out black residents. I've heard that the school, I mean, the schools have just continued to be uh, a place of, of conflict in the neighborhood. And African American, again, this is anecdotal, African Americans who are making the decision of whether to move to West Mount Airy and send their kid to private school or move to the suburbs and send their kid to public school have tended toward the latter in recent years um, for economic reasons. Uh, but again, this is all anecdotal and I don't have any, any hard research to explain those numbers. You're working on another book? I am, yeah. Uh, two years ago, I started to direct an oral history project on the relief and recovery efforts uh, post Hurricane Sandy. And the project um, started in the classroom. I worked with six undergraduate students to build this project. And it's sort of taken on a life of its own. And we're now conducting follow-up interviews with all of the, with, we, we conducted roughly 40 interviews in the year after the storm. And now we're conducting follow-up follow -up interviews with everyone. We're building a website for it. And, and I'm also going to write a book based on that. Well, we are out of time. We've been speaking to Abigail Perkis. She's the author of this book, Making Good Neighbors, Civil Rights, Liberalism, and Integration in Post-War Philadelphia. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. We'd like to hear from you. Our email address is pabooks at pcntv.com. Like us on Facebook to learn more about PA Books.